0: All right, Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. We are in our third installment as we move to the book of Acts. Uh, we First, we dealt with the prologue. We looked at the first five verses where we looked at the purpose of Acts and the purpose of Luke, the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke. Both have the same authors. The purpose of it is to look at the historical evidence of what God has done uh, and what many of the people uh, who know Jesus were claiming that he did, and looking back and saying that I have gone back, Luke says, and I have looked at the evidence. I have talked to eyewitnesses. And I want to give you a careful account of what God has done. And the reason why he does that is twofold. First and foremost, it's so that you may be encouraged in your faith. So that we as Christians, we do not have simply a philosophy. We don't have simply a moral code. We have a system that stands and falls on whether we say that what Jesus did is true or not. Did it actually happen? If it didn't happen, then it doesn't matter what we believe about it. it is, but we believe that there's historical evidence. That's what Luke and does. He's providing evidence of eyewitnesses who saw Jesus die. He saw Jesus rise from the dead. All right? So that was when we looked at the prologue. And that was to encourage us in our faith, but also to, to thrust us into mission. Because when you believe this and you believe it fully, it changes your life, and it sends you into mission. And last week, we looked at the mission itself, or the commission, and we see in verse 8 that we are going to be a people who are empowered by the Holy Spirit to go to the ends of the earth as witnesses, as witnesses of the kingdom of God, saying that the kingdom has come and it is coming, that God is going to make all things new. And so we come to this morning to verses 9 through 11 is where we are focused in God's word, as we look at the ascension, read along with me as I read out loud verses 1 through 11. In the first book of Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given command through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after suffering by many proofs, appearing to them for 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And then this is the passage where we'll focus this morning, verses 9 through 11. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This ends the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. May the grass wither and the flower fade. The word of our God may it stand forever. Well, as we saw last week, God has given us the mission, their commission to be witnesses to the kingdom of God to the ends of the earth. And if there is a kingdom, there is inherently a king. And this is about the coronation of, of the king this morning. This, we're going to be looking at this morning what is called, in theological terms, the ascension of Jesus. The ascension of Jesus. The ascension is of incredible importance for the gospel, for understanding the gospel, for our experience of the gospel. So the, if you can imagine the gospel being a bomb, like just you know imagine kind of like you know, cartoon, round bowling ball type of bomb. It's made up of various components and parts Parts of the gospel of Jesus' work on this world is that, that God himself came into this world and took on flesh. He incarnated himself here. He lived amongst us, and he lived a righteous life that you and I couldn't live. And then he died a death for us. He took the wrath of God. He took all your sin. He atoned for your sin and declares you as righteous, all who trust in him. And then he, he, he rose from the dead so that we may be justified. So, we know that his, our sins have been completely paid for and that death has been destroyed. That's the makeup of the bomb. The ascension, the ascension is the wick, it's a lit wick. And Pentecost, as we're going to look at in a couple weeks, is the explosion. But the ascension, the bomb, the gospel bomb cannot go off without the ascension. It is the detonation of the gospel to the ends of the earth and to all times. So that's the importance of the ascension. That's the power of it. But that doesn't really explain what goes on. And there is a lot of confusion, in large part because we don't give much focus to the ascension. What has actually happened? I think the confusion can be well stated when we look at some, a quote from uh, a communist dictator. Nikita Khrushchev said this, that, referring to Yuri Gagarin, he said this, that Yuri Gagarin flew to space, he was a cosmonaut, but he didn't see God anywhere up there. The idea and the concept of ascension for many people is that God levitates himself right up into space, but the ascension is far more than that. So let's look first this morning at what happened to the ascension, the nuts and bolts of what's actually going on. I'm going to look at this in two parts. First is the act of the ascension itself, and second, the destination of the ascension. And that's going to lead us to our second part this morning where we'll look at the, the, the meaning of the ascension, why it's significant. The first, what happened at the ascension? First, in verse, the act of the ascension. What do we mean when we say that Jesus ascended? Well, rather obviously, uh, it, it points out, it says he was lifted up. He rose up. And yes, this is David Blaine type stuff, right? He levitated. He went up into the air. That is rather obvious, at least from the text, that that is what they are claiming. The disciples are saying they were eyewitnesses to this, that they saw Jesus lifted up into the heaven, into the heavens. Now, this is significant, not simply because Jesus was physically lifted up. Oh, that's, that's really cool. I mean, that's nice. But the, the, the significance of the ascension is not that Jesus can levitate. That's not that big of a deal. I mean, it is a big deal, but it's really, that's not the point of it. The point of it, there's something going on here physically, but it's representing something going on positionally. C.S. Lewis said this, that we, when we look up, we understand or we always look up. We think of God as always being above us physically. He says it this way. We understand intuitively the, tra- the d- direction of transcendence. It is hardwired into our understanding that all cultures look up. Cultures, we don't think of God being down. We always think of him looking up. The pagans of old, they believe the gods lived up in the mountains above and beyond us. We have all cultures, all religions have thought of God as being above and beyond. But they don't simply mean, and what the Bible doesn't simply mean, is that Jesus lives up in, heaven, in this heaven somewhere. As if Jesus is an eternal cosmonaut running around with a spacesuit up in the sky. And this actually is the confusion that I think some of these have. That's about as far as we go, or that's as far as we think. And actually, I can, I've used this illustration before, but I think it's, a, it's an appropriate one. It's from my childhood to understand how we often think about the Ascension. When I was a kid, I grew up about 40 minutes away from Cape Canaveral where they launched the space shuttle. They would launch the space shuttle. My house would shake. It was really cool. Saw many launches. Now, for me, the great amazement in my understanding of the Ascension as a kid was this. The great miracle of the Ascension was how in the world could Jesus fly up in space without a spacesuit? That's not the miracle. That's not the unbelievable thing that is going on. It is not like what Yuri, Yuri Gagarin said, that he flew up in space and didn't find God anywhere up there. That is not what's going on in the ascension. What we find in the ascension when we say that Jesus ascended is that it's a physical representation of the positional reality that he has gone up and beyond us to a place of transcendence, of leadership and authority. Where is the other place in which, the other way in which we use the word ascension? When somebody ascended. We use it to talk about kings and queens. That it is not that it is a physical representation that when they rise up onto a throne and are coronated the king or queen of a, of a country as a monarch ruling over a nation, that physical rising up is representat- representative of their positional reality that they now rule over everything in their jurisdiction. Listen, you and I, if we went and sat on the throne of England, that doesn't mean we actually have any power. It's the position that matters. And so this is what Jesus is doing. In the literal act of being lifted up, of going above and beyond physically, it is a physical representation of the fact that he is entering and moving onto a throne room. He is ascending to the throne. So the question is, if Jesus is going to a throne, where is that throne? Where is that throne? And this is the destination of the ascension. And to be very clear, Jesus ascends to a throne in heaven he ascends to a throne in heaven and where do we see this in this text well actually the angel said that this is where jesus is gone but we also see it in that other phrase when it says that jesus was lifted up and suddenly it says a cloud took him it took him now clouds are of significant importance in the scriptures we look at clouds and we go that's nice that's a cumulus cloud. But why in the world, in a book in which Luke is actually using his words rather tightly, he has meaning with these words, would he even care about the fact that a cloud takes Jesus? Well, it's because clouds in the scriptures always have significant um, representation of God's glory. And the, the people of Israel, when they leave Egypt, when they, God draws them out of Egypt um, and across the Red Sea and draws them to the Promised Land, what leads them? A cloud. Of God's glory. When God calls the people of Israel to come to Mount Sinai, and He's gonna give them the book of the law that's gonna declare, I am your God, I am your king. What what rests on Sinai? A cloud. It was God's glory descending upon the mountain. When the people of Israel build the tabernacle and later build the temple, something descends on the Holy of Holies. What is that? It is the cloud. The cloud consistently represents the glory of God. And it's also what we see in the story about Elijah. Who, when he's lifted up, he doesn't die. It says that a cloud takes him and he goes up into heaven. What do we see here with Jesus? This is the glory cloud of God. Where has Jesus gone? Jesus has been taken up by the very glory of God into God's glorious presence. Now, this helps us understand something about heaven. You see, what is heaven? That is where Jesus is at. It's important to know what heaven is. Heaven is simply, it's not simply above us, geographically or physically. Heaven is an utterly different dimension that is under God's rule and authority. Heaven and earth are not two different, two different places where heaven just happens to be up. We could find heaven one day. No, heaven is a different dimension entirely. God is over all this created order, and it has two orders, heaven and it has earth. And heaven runs earth. Heaven is the throne room. It is the palace. It is the place where earth is run. And what we, the, heaven is distinct from earth in this way. Heaven is the place where God's glory is fully known. There is no filter on it. There is no veil upon God's glory. There's not even in a cloud. We can see it perfectly and finally. And also in heaven, God's glory is fully applied so that people do God's will perfectly in heaven. That's heaven. And that is the place where Jesus now sits on a throne. Jesus, N.T. Wright, said it this way. He said that heaven is the CEO's office over earth. And that is where Jesus now sits. He rules and he reigns over all the earth. that is where he has gone. Now, that's the nuts and bolts of the ascension. Jesus was lifted up physically, but representing the fact that he was moving to a throne. And the place of that throne is in God's glorious presence in heaven. Jesus God, the Son of God, has been restored to God the Father. He has done his work on earth, and now he has taken his work right into the throne room of God. And it is from there that he's going to apply his work of the gospel over all space in time, so that God's gospel goes to the ends of the earth and goes throughout time. Now, that's the nuts and bolts of the ascension. That's what's going on. Now what does it mean? Let's drive it down, and this is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning. And there's going to be four points, so this is going to be a little bit encyclopedic. I'm not going to be able to spend a whole lot of time or illustrate a whole lot, but bear with me and try to take uh, good notes. And we'll we'll see if we can drive home what the ascension means for us. The ascension, very generally, before I get the specifics, the ascension means that God is still working. That when Jesus leaves Earth, it does not mean that Jesus' work is done. In fact, if you remember back in Acts 1, verse 1, what does it say? Luke is writing to Theophilus, the recipient of the book, and he says, Theophilus, I, in my previous book, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach. Assuming that, what this book is about is all that Jesus continues to do and to teach. And now he is continuing to do and teach it from heaven. And it's in this way that the gospel is detonated. So let's see the meaning of it. First is this. The ascension means that Jesus is reigning and ruling, not just from the future, right now. He is reigning and ruling right now. Jesus was put on a throne. And the relationship between heaven and earth is that heaven is the control room for earth. When Jesus ascended to a throne, he did not ascend to a small earthly throne. See, that's what we looked at last week, what the disciples want from Jesus. Jesus, be king of Jerusalem, be king of Israel. Jesus did not come to be king of a a provincial little nation. Jesus came to be king over the whole universe, over all the cosmos, over all the earth. Ephesians 1, 20 through 23 draws this out and says this, that he, this is Paul saying, that he worked in Christ when God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule, and all authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he puts all things under his feet. And the Great Commission, I'm going to try to draw in light of verse 8 last week, where we're called to be witnesses and we had that commission given to us, draw and, do, and connect these meanings to our mission a few places. But the Great Commission was this All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. We don't have authority. But we go out as ambassadors with the power of the one who does have authority, and his name is King Jesus. Now, very briefly, there are two applications or implications of this for your Christian walk. The first is this if Jesus is king, if he is the sovereign, which means he is a monarch, and in a monarchy, does that mean you have a say? No. It means he has the say. He is the first and the last. And what that means for your life is you ought to surrender to him. That your life must be his. We know who the real king is. And he rules and he reigns. And therefore, he doesn't reign in the future. Therefore, what I'm calling you to do is to say, not sometime in the future, but today I bow the knee to King Jesus. Today I surrender to him. He is my king now, not some point in the future when I think it's convenient, but he is my king now. This is what we so desperately need to hear, because we are not so good at running our life. In fact, we stink at it. We have, we have been the kings of our own life. And by the way, going back to last week and connecting this to mission, what undercuts our mission is the fact that we are living for our little kingdoms Instead of giving ourselves fully and completely as good soldiers, as witnesses to the perfect king, we haven't surrendered ourselves to him. So often that is the reason why we don't get engaged in the mission of God in this world. Because it's more about us than about him. But the call here is to surrender to him because he is king, whether you like it or not. The second implication is this. As if he is king, we call kings what? Sovereigns. Sovereign. Which means this, that Jesus has the right to control everything that comes into your life. Now, that's really good news, but we have to get through some stuff first. Jesus is sovereign right now in your life. Now, you look at that and you go, now wait a second. Jesus is ruling and reigning in my life, and yet my finances are in a mess, and I physically feel terrible, and my children are rebelling. Uh, is he really in charge? And the answer is, at least according to the ascension, is yes, he is ruling and he is reigning right now, which this is the difficult thing, which means that those things, even those difficult things in your life right now are part of his perfect rule and reign in your life, and they're there for his purposes. They might say, now, this doesn't seem like good news. How, are we, how, are we, how can this be confirmed? Well, we can confirm it this way, and that's through the cross, because there is... The cross is the worst thing. You might say, there are terrible things going on in my life. How could God bring this into my life? Well, I would answer that with the cross of Jesus Christ, which is the cross is the worst thing that has ever happened. That the king of kings, that the son of God, the most beautiful one, the perfect and righteous one, was slaughtered by man. And yet through that, God brought glory for himself and good for you and me. That is a sovereign king working all things out for your good and his glory. Listen to, listen to me, we all, we love Romans 8.28. That God works all things out for the good of those who love him. Romans 8.28 comes to you courtesy of the ascension. Because if he is not king, if he is not sovereign, and ruling over all things right now, then that means maybe, maybe there's some bad things in your life and he's not in control of it. Maybe, maybe they're not for your good. That, that passage is undergirded by the ascension of Jesus Christ. That he is in control and he is king right now. That means we can look at all the difficult things in our life and the difficult things in the world and we can go, God, I don't understand this, but you are a good king. And I will trust that you're reigning even in this this difficulty in my life. Second main thing that the ascension means or implication for us is this, is that Jesus is right now interceding. Jesus is interceding. He's ruling and reigning and he is also interceding the ascension marks the beginning of Jesus' what we call his heavenly priesthood. Now, in order to understand this rightly, we need to understand what a priest does. A priest, in particular as we understand it from the Old Testament, a priest would represent the people before God. They would go before God, in particular in the sacrificial system, in order to try to atone and cover over their sins. What would they do? They would slaughter a lamb. And the priest would then take the lamb's blood into the Holy of Holies, the place of God's glory, of God's presence, and put that before the Lord and sprinkle it on the altar before the Lord and say, will you forgive them? Will this cover over their sin? He was the representative. And what we find is that this is what Jesus is. Jesus is the perfect lamb and he is the perfect priest. He is the perfect, a lamb's blood cannot actually cover your sins. We needed a perfect lamb and his name is Jesus. And that's what the cross is. And the ascension is now Jesus acting, not only just as the lamb, but now as the perfect priest who will take his very own blood. He goes in with the the marks on his hands and the wounds on his side, even in his glorified body, and he takes it before God, and He means it is a means of pleading for your grace. And that means this. Two implications for this for your life. It means this, first and foremost, is that we are assured of salvation because Jesus is our priest in heaven right now. Romans 8, through 35 says this. In the context, I love it, this first question. It says, who shall bring in any charge against God's elect? It brings in this into focus, that Jesus has gone up almost as your defense attorney. The, 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 the devil, all the things point to you and say, look at you, you have been sin, you're sinful. The devil comes and says, he's the prosecutor and says, you are deserving of God's wrath. And yet here's what it says in Romans 8. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God's, God who justified who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, and who is at the right hand of God. And what is he doing? And who is indeed interceding for us. Therefore, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? What this is saying is that because Jesus has taken his own blood, he has taken his wounds before the Father, that he is now, whenever the devil comes to you and says, you are guilty in God's sight, you are deserving his wrath, you can say, no, no. No, no. The next thing that you hear in the courtroom is Jesus saying, I have paid for those sins. I have paid for those sins. And he says it to God the Father your that wrath, your wrath has been poured out on me, and I, my blood covers them. This is an assurance that we are the Lord's. Assurance that your sin doesn't make you that you are... It wasn't that Jesus just simply covered your sin up to the point you were converted. He covered your sin from yesterday and today. He's constantly pleading on your behalf. So, the second implication, one, is that we're assured of our salvation. Second, we can now pray with confidence. Listen, if you're a sinner and you deserve God's wrath and you have to come to God and pray to Him and you're going to ask Him, you're in need and you want to ask Him some stuff, but you know you you deserve God to crush you, you're not going to come to His presence very quickly, are you? If you do, you're going to come with your knees knocking. But most likely, you probably won't come at all. But yet, Jesus' intercession on our behalf means that we can enter the throne room of God and we can pray. Hebrews 4, 14 through, 15, through 16 says this. I'm going, to read, I'm going to pick up in verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive grace and mercy and find grace in the time of need. You have things you need to ask God for. You have a mission that, you, that God has given you. You see, the, very, the response, you know what we're going to see? As soon as the story of the ascension is over in Acts 1, what do the apostles run off and do? They run back to Jerusalem and they pray. They pray. And what we're going to see throughout Acts is because Jesus is on throne, enthroned on, on high, that they believe that they have access to God the Father who will answer their prayers. And so what we see is that Peter gets thrown in jail, and what do the Christians do? They pray all night. Paul and Silas get thrown in jail, and what do they do? They sing and they pray. What we see consistently throughout Acts is the people of God deploying this power that they have an access to God the Father through God the Son to have God hear them and have Jesus intercede on their behalf. So Jesus is interceding for us. And the third meaning of the the ascension is this, that Jesus is now sending. He is now sending. Now, I'm going to go back to our passage here in Acts 1 and pick up in verse 10 and verse 11, but it's a little bit confusing, so I'm going to have to draw some lines and connect some dots for you. But it says this in verse 10, that the the, the apostles, Jesus is ascending ascending to heaven and we find that the apostles in verse 10, they're gazing into heaven. They're rather awed. And yet, this very these insensitive angels show up. And here's what they say: They say this, Men of Galilee, why are you stand looking into heaven? Now you and I, if we saw one, if we saw somebody levitate, that's you know, that's all worthy. But then if heaven opens up and a glory cloud takes Jesus up into heaven, that's you know, that's at least double all-worthy, right? You should be allowed to sit and ponder for a minute as to what in the world is going on, and yet two angels show up and say, Why, what are you doing? Go away. Why are you looking at this? There's nothing to see here. Now, what is going on here? Now, what, what are, what, here? We have to connect it to some of the things that have already been said in Acts 1. In Acts 4 and 5, verses 4 and 5, we see that Jesus has given his disciples an enormous promise of a gift. Verse 4 and 5, it says this, while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, So that's where they're supposed to be. Don't leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water. And here's the gift. Here's the promise. But you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you when you're in Jerusalem. And yet what do we see? They're not in Jerusalem. They're sitting there waiting. But not only that, not only is the Holy Spirit about to come, and they should be anticipating that, but we see in the Gospel of John but the sign that the Holy Spirit is about to come is the ascension itself. And the disciples should have made this connection. Here's what it says in John 16, verse 7. Jesus says this to his disciples, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Ever thought this? Why is it that Jesus left? For he, said, he says, for I do, If I do not go away, the Helper, that is the Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. John 16 is saying... That when I sin, when I leave, that's when you're going to get the Holy Spirit. And so what? It, it, let me illustrate it this way, the disciples, it is like me telling my kids, I'm about to leave for the day, and I say, "Kids, as soon as I leave, there is going to be available for you an un the biggest surprise I've ever given you, the biggest gift I could ever give to you. And yet, so I pull out of the driveway, and my kids are still going, "Well, he left." Why did he leave? What's going on? And my wife coming out and go, going, guys, my wife gets to be the angel in this illustration. That my, and then lovely? And my wife comes out and goes, kids, didn't you hear him? Run to your room. There's a gift for you there. That's what the angels are saying. Get moving. Here's, the ascension means this. The ascension means that Jesus is now sending the Holy Spirit to us. That is the sending work of the ascension. That Jesus rises up, and he ascends the Holy Spirit to all the Holy Spirit to you and to me. Now here's the question though. There's a twofold sending going on here. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit to us, but what's the significance of that? Why is that so great in detonating the gospel? It's this. It's this why in the world, why in the world does Jesus go to heaven? I mean, other than this whole, he, can't send the, he says, I can't send the Holy Spirit unless I go to heaven, which I don't understand. I, the Bible never says why those things are, why Jesus can't be here and why he can't send the Holy Spirit all at the same time. Understand this. Jesus' work, Jesus' mission is to reach the world, the ends of the earth, every tribe, tongue, and nation. And understand this. Jesus, in his incarnation form, is a, has a human body, he is physically in one place at one time. He cannot be everywhere at one time in his physical form. So here's the question How does Jesus take his gospel and send it everywhere? You and me. This is the sending. He sends us the Spirit, and that's a great gift. But then he's also doing it, it's a twofold sending, and then you and I are being sent. It's like this. Let me illustrate it this way. You see, academics and scholars have understood that from Acts one, what is being articulated here is they, they've looked back and they've studied um, ancient accounts of when kings or Caesars or generals would come back to a city after a great victory, and they'd say that Acts one looks very similar to what a king does when he returns from a victory. He rearticulates what he did, so he comes into the city and he says, "Let me tell you about my glorious victory." And in Jesus' case, that's exactly what he's doing. He said, I rose from the dead. I preached to you the kingdom of God. I defeated sin. But not only that, but the the king or the Caesar, in order to proclaim the glory of all he has done and proclaim his victories to all his lands, can he get there all himself? No, he's one person. So what does he do? He takes part of the spoils of his victory, and they would make coins with the image of that hero, of that Caesar on it. And he he would just give away these coins. So that everybody who has heard his message about his great victory would take those coins and whenever they would see it, they would tell other people about the king's victory. That is what is going on in Acts 1. as that Jesus has come to earth and he is now the victorious king. He has defeated sin and he has defeated death and he has lived a perfect righteous life for you. And now in order to get the word out to the ends of the earth, because that's where he's going, he says, let me, I'm gonna make you the coins. You are my coins. You are the coins. You are the means of declaring the message of Jesus' victory. And here's the beautiful thing. More and more, as his spirit indwells you, you look more and more like the king. You look more and more like him, and you're enabled more and more to be a reflection of what he's doing and and a message about his victory in this world. So how does the world know about Jesus' ascension, about Jesus' victory? Because he sends the Holy Spirit to us, and the Holy Spirit sends us out. One final point this morning on the meaning of the resurrection. That Jesus is preparing and returning. It says this in verse 11 this Jesus will come the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The ascension is the prototype of the second coming. The ascension, if he goes away, right, when someone leaves, you go, the, 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 the natural question is are you coming back? The ascension by leaving. He begs the question, are you coming back? And it's answered in verse 11, yes. But in what way will he come back? I want you to see a couple of things here. First, the nature of his leaving. It was rather sudden, wasn't it? I mean, Jesus is running along, he's teaching his disciples, and all of a sudden he levitates and the cloud takes him. I mean, that was rapid. I mean, Jesus was there and then gone. And that is what his second coming is going to be like. And within that, I want you to hear this, there is a call and there is a warning. It's similar to the surrendering warning. That Jesus will come back. We see this from Matthew 24 and 1 Thessalonians 5. That Jesus, says, will come back like a thief in the night. You will not know when he's going to come back. There's no need in trying to figure out when. And he will come back suddenly and swiftly in his appearance. Therefore, you better be ready. Have you surrendered to the king? He came once to provide for you salvation. He's coming again to bring judgment. The aspect for those of you that do trust in him, though, is this. is the missional call that there is a sense of urgency about this. There's a sense of urgency about this mission. Verse 8, you'll be my eyewitnesses. Go. What are you doing here? Get on. There's work to be done. There's a sense of urgency because the king is coming back. There's work to be done. There's means. There's w- we must go out to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ so that many might be saved and come into the king, kingdom of the king. The second, though, what we see in regards to the king's coming is we see that what took Jesus? He disappeared from what? The glory cloud. And when he returns, he will appear in glory. In fact, what we see in Revelation is we see Jesus is riding a cloud like a chariot. In other words, what's going on in Revelation is that Jesus is going to come down with his glory as his chariot emanating from his presence. That's how he's coming down. The cloud of glory that swept him up will be the chariot upon which he returns, and when he returns, when he returns, he's going to bring something with him. All the application of his glory in heaven is going to come with him. You see, what we find in John 14 is that when Jesus goes away, not only is he doing all these things through us and for us, but we also find that he's preparing a place. It says this in John 14, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. So that... The, the issue is they're troubled. Their hearts are troubled. Why should they not be troubled? For in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. The truth of the ascension points forward to the fact when Jesus will reappear in all his glory, and as it says in the New Testament, we will see the radiance of his beauty. No longer will we have a filter. We will see all of his beauty, and this is the longing of all creation since we have fallen, to be back in God's presence, to be with him in his house. What Jesus has done in the ascension, he has gone on into heaven, and he has flipped on the light for us. And he said, no, no, I, you're not only you know, you am I going to bring you into my home, but I'm going to bring my home to you. My glorious home that I have prepared for you is to come down. And so what we see is that in, in Jesus' in ascension, what Jesus does is he takes his finished work on earth, and he takes it up into heaven. And what we see in the second coming is he takes his finished work in heaven and brings it down to earth to us. That's the second coming. And when he reappears, We will see him as he is in all of his glory. And so, as it says in John 14, this is our hope. you distressed by something today. Are you worn out from the mission? Has it got you exhausted? Listen, there is a day coming when he will make all things new we see in Revelation and the king of kings will enter into and the new Jerusalem will come down and everything will be as it ought to be. That means our mission, it's guaranteed success. Not only is he going to use all the difficulties in our life for our good under his kingship, but also means his return means that our success is guaranteed for our mission. So you have every reason to go proclaim with the authority and the power of Jesus to the ends of the earth. Let's pray, and then let's go to the table. Those who are serving, come forward as we pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, so many of us, we are not about the ascension enough we've not gave it enough um, care in our lives have have not sought to apply its implications to us God I pray that Lord I pray as it says in Ephesians that every knee in this room would bow to you that there are those this morning who are here who are resistant to your kingship in their life that, Lord, they would bow, that they would hear that not only are you powerful, but you are so good, that you would use the difficult things in our lives to bring glory and good into us, that you you would use the cross to save us, that the king would leave his throne to come down onto earth in order to make this place His part of his kingdom, to save us, to draw us into his kingdom. God, I pray that we would believe that that we would surrender our lives to it. Lord, I pray for those that love you this morning. Lord, that the ascension would compel us to be eyewitnesses. That the fact that you are a king who's returning would empower us for mission. That the spirit who sends us would empower us for mission to go to the ends of the earth. That the fact that you're a king coming in judgment would motivate us to proclaim to our friends and to our family and to all peoples that there is a good king who is coming, who has come to save us and offers his salvation to all peoples. And Lord, now we come to your, your table this morning. We thank you that as a king, you have a massive table. And you're a king who offers us a feast. And you beckon us and you draw us in. But well, we, we set aside this bread this morning, which represents the fact that Jesus, his body was broken to take the wrath that we deserve. and His blood was shed to cover us with your righteousness to cleanse us from all our sin. God, this is simple bread and simple juice or, or wine, and Lord, we set it aside, Lord, that you would give us great grace, that you would come in all your power of kingship in us, we would experience you in a sweet and full way this morning by your Spirit. We ask this in the name of your Son, King Jesus, amen.